All right. Well, thanks for having me. It is truly um, a pleasure to be here. For 15 years or so, I was in full-time, you know, church work ministry where week in and week out, I was either, you know, having the opportunity to preach to youth. I was a youth minister for a long time, and then I was a pastor here in town for five years. And so, um, right currently, in the last six months, I've been um, a chaplain at the hospital. Uh, and most people on their sickbed don't want me to come in and preach a sermon. So I haven't had the opportunity to preach much recently. And so this is truly... Um, a pleasure for me and a blessing to me, and hopefully um, reading in Daniel 1 will be a blessing to you as well. Um, so coming to a church, and there was no sort of, no, no restriction given, like if I can go anywhere, well then I'm going to Daniel, because I love Daniel. Daniel is by far my favorite book of the Bible, um, and I think for a lot of the same reasons that it may be, that it may be dear to your heart too, right? We think of Daniel in the lion's den, and we think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know, being faced with the fiery furnace. And we think about these stories of some of the strongest faith in the Old Testament. These guys standing up to death itself, and they won't back down. But what we don't think about too often is Daniel chapter 1. Uh, we don't think about where did these guys come from. Do you know that in Daniel chapter 1, Daniel and his buddies, they're teenagers. When Daniel faces down the lion, he's an old man. He doesn't just go from one day, he's, he's a teenager, to, oh, and now all of a sudden, he's able to face down this lion. This is a lifetime of building and growing his faith. And so Daniel chapter 1 shows us the really small things that God tests him with, right? We all like the story of the hero, and we, we look at Daniel, and we want to be like Daniel, but the problem is, a lot of times for us, we don't want to take those small steps first. Just give me the cape, right? Show me the lion, and then give me the strength to overcome it. And if most of us had to stand in front of that lion today, we might cower, because maybe we haven't been tested the way that we need to be. So I don't, I, I think it's unwise for us to skip ahead to the lion's den. I think it's unwise for us to skip ahead to the furnace. Our journey into a faithful man or woman of God is a lifelong endeavor. So that's what I want to do. I want to look at the beginning of Daniel's story, not at the end of it, right? We want, we want to look at what, what brought him to the place where he was able to stand face to face with the lion and not back down. So we heard Daniel chapter 1 earlier. Let's just reread verses 1 and 2 to start. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Now, let's get one thing clear here at the, at the beginning of this. Um, Sometimes we look at Daniel, we look at his buddies, and we say, those are the hero of the story. God is the hero of this story, right? Daniel has a faith that we should admire, but God is the hero. God is the one who is doing all of the things that happen. God's the one who later shuts the mouth of the lion. And right here, God is the one who causes Jerusalem to fall. Now, in verse 1, we read that Nebuchadnezzar goes and besieges a city. And he probably doesn't even recognize 
what happened in verse 2, right? The truth that we see in verse 2, which is that God is the one who does this. It's not Nebuchadnezzar. It's not his strength or his army. If God would have wanted Jerusalem to stand, he could have done any number of things, right? You, you, you look at Moses and the, and the Israelites in the, in the desert and the ground opens up and they get swallowed and snakes come from nowhere. And there's just endless things that God can do to stop a strong army from coming. But God allows Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians to come in and take it over. See, the only reason that Jerusalem is besieged is because God allowed it. And what he allows to happen is not just some really small, insignificant victory. But this is like Mike Tyson in his prime, 30 seconds he knocks the guy out, right? This is humiliating for Judah. This is humiliating for Jerusalem. It's not like they just lost a small battle. Their entire city was besieged. And not only that, but where does Nebuchadnezzar go? He goes into the temple. He takes things that are reverent and that have been dedicated to Jehovah, to God of Israel, and takes them back to his temple and puts them into the, to the temple of his gods. Why? When we think of war, right, we prayed for Ukraine earlier, we think of Ukraine versus Russia. And this time... It's the God of Babylon versus the God of Israel. Whoever wins that war, the God won the war. Nebuchadnezzar is saying, our God is stronger than your God because look what we just did to you. And so he takes the vessels and he puts them in his house of worship to say, look, I, this is all symbolic. But Nebuchadnezzar is trying to say, I have captured your God and he now exists in my temple. We overpowered your God. He doesn't understand, right, that God allowed this to happen. He doesn't understand that his God is nothing more than an evil spirit, a demon, and that God has full power and full control over everything that is going on. It's not, it's not a coincidence that they go back to Shinar. Anybody recognize that place? What else was happened in Shinar back in Genesis? This is where the Tower of Babel was built, right? Where the people think that they're better than God and that they're going to make a name for themselves. They're going to build this tower and show God how strong they are. Show the world their power. That's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar is trying to do here. Nebuchadnezzar must have been really proud of himself. Not knowing what's going on. And so there's two things I think we need to see from these first two verses. Number one is, how often in your victories do you forget to give God the glory for it? How often in your victories do you bring yourself up and say, wow, look how good I did today. Man, I've been praying for 30 days straight. Look how good and strong my will is. And look, and you know, I shared the gospel with people when I really wanted to shy away. And look how strong. And we, we don't have a problem with taking credit in victory. It's usually when we fail that we say, God, where are you at? What are you doing? Why aren't you helping me? But when we in victory, a lot of the times we forget. We forget to give, the God, give God the glory. Let me suggest something to you. In your victory, if you forget to give God glory, you are acting like Nebuchadnezzar and not like Daniel. Right? If you read the book of Daniel, we all look at him and we, I want to be like Daniel. He's the one I aspire to. I want to have faith like him. But when we try to take the glory for the good things that we do, we are being like this evil king and not like the faithful servant. Secondly, I want to ask you, when is the last time that you felt like God just knocked you out? 
And he humiliated you because of the sin or something going on in your life. And he brought you to your knees, right? When this happens, a lot of the times we complain. God must not be paying attention. He must not love me. Where is he at? What's he doing? Why is he doing this to me? I don't deserve this. But don't ever forget that God will wreck your entire comfortable, cushy life if that's what it takes to get our attention. Right? He's done it to me multiple times throughout my life. Because God cares far more about our sanctification than our bank account or than how big of a house we have or any of the things that sometimes can cloud our vision of what's important in this life. God wrecked Jerusalem, and he will wreck us too if that's what it takes. Now, when he does it, we have two choices, right? We can ask the wrong questions. God, why would you do this to me? Oh, woe is me. What is going on? Why me? And feel sorry for ourselves. Or we can say, God, I know that you did this. You did it on purpose, and you did it for a reason. What's that reason? What do you want me to see? What am I, how can I grow in this? How can my faith become stronger? And how can I continue to serve you in spite of my circumstances? See, we can lay down and quit and cry and whine. Or we can fight, right? We can fight to continue to serve God. This can happen to us as individuals. It can happen to us as churches. It can happen to us as a nation. What are we going to do? Are we just going to lay down? Well, the crazies, let's just let them have it, right? Let's just lay over and not fight back. No, we are supposed to stand up for the things that we believe in and fight. The reason that God throws hardships into our life is not to break our spirit, to strengthen our resolve. That is what he wants from us. He wants a resolve to be stronger, to continue, even in the worst of circumstances. I'll say one last thing here. God doesn't do this flippantly. He's not going to come and upturn your life on the first hint of sin or disobedience. How many times did God warn Israel before he finally said, enough is enough, and he brings them in. Generation after generation, king after king, he warns through the prophets over and over and over again. Stop sinning, or I will bring about your ruin. The very poignant verse, Isaiah 39, 6-7. Behold, the days are coming. When all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Some of your own sons, whom will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away. And they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. God is nothing if not a man of his word, right? He doesn't say things and then back off of them, right? God, when he speaks, these things come about. And the nation of Israel, or at least at this time, the nation of Judah, right, the southern kingdom, they will not heed God's warning. And God finally says, enough is enough. His his patience has run dry. His mercy limits his mercy. All right, let's look at three through seven here. We're introduced to sort of the main characters of the book. The king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people to Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, use without blemish, of good appearance, 
skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and uh, competent to stand in the king's palace, to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Let me just ask you something. How often do you hear from the unbelieving world that the Bible has nothing to say to the 21st century? So old, so out of date, what can we possibly learn from this? Just replace the word king with Hollywood or Congress or Harvard or whatever unbelieving institution that exists in our culture. And that's exactly what our culture is trying to do to us in this very day. What does King Nebuchadnezzar do? All of the same stuff. He's not doing it out in the open. He's being very subtle in the way that he is trying to take these young boys and shape them into something that would just regurgitate the Babylonian way of thinking, the Babylonian way of living. The first thing he does, we'll change your name, it's not a big deal. Daniel, Mishael, Hananiah, Asheriah, all four of those names have God in them. Right? El is Elohim, Daniel, right? The end of Daniel's name, Mishael, Hananiah, Asheriah, those are names that have to do with God. And Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar says, you know what, let's just get rid of that. We don't want you to be, we don't want to be calling out the goodness of who God is just by saying your name. Let me give you a different name. And their Babylonian names not only erase God from their identity or try to, but they bring about pagan gods. Their new names are, being, are, are praising Baal and the, and the gods of Babylon. Now, this is not enough in and of itself to make the boys falter, right? It's just one thing, one little piece of the puzzle. Nebuchadnezzar tries to wine and dine them, like literally tries to wine and dine them, right? He's giving them food. He's giving them food from his own table, wine from his own table. We don't see it explicitly here, but knowing what we know about Babylon, it's safe to say that he probably put sexual impurity temptation before them as well. Basically, he brought a bunch of teenage boys in and said, what do you want? Anything you want, you can have it. Any teenage boys here today? How long would you last in that situation if you were taken away from your parents, taken away from your church family, in a completely foreign land, and someone said, anything you want, you won't get in trouble, I promise, anything you want, you can have it. Adults, how long would you last? How long would any of us last, right? We hear this and we like to think, oh yeah, I I would stand up to this. I I would fight back and I would fight the good fight. But this is is grounds for self-examination, right? Imagine that for a moment. No consequences, no earthly consequences whatsoever. Where would you fall? Where is your weakness at? I think it's worth taking the time to think about that, right? To pray that the Lord would strengthen that. Because you don't want to wait until the temptation and the test is before you. But, oh, whoops. Like, like, God, can you strengthen this? I got like five seconds to fight this off. Give me the strength. Give me the extra faith now. We want to do it long before the temptation comes. The only way to know is self-examination, right? Where is, where is your armor weak? Strengthen it now so when the day comes, 
you will be able to fight back. You will be able to withstand the temptation. You see, Nebuchadnezzar, he's no fool. He knows what he's doing, right? What is he doing? He's gathering young people, right, whose minds are moldable. He's gathering the richest, the most powerful, the best-looking, the strongest, the smartest. He says, what, what, what is his plan? He brings them. He's going to re-educate them for three years. And what do you think he's going to do? Leave them there? He's going to send them back. Go back to Jerusalem. Now you're young men. You're not, you're not boys anymore, but you're young men, and I'm going to send you back. And when the best and the brightest and the smartest and the most beautiful people all agree that one thing is right, most people fall right in line with that. Is that not what is happening in our world? Hollywood and Congress and all the, the people who have the most power and the people who have the most influence in our world are con- coming together and agreeing on things and they're trying to tell us that what we believe as Christians is wrong. Stop believing that. Fall in line with what we're telling you is true and we have a choice. Are we going to fight back against that or are we going to float down the stream right along with them? You see, it's much easier to just not do anything, Right? Jump in the raft and just float wherever the river takes you, wherever, wherever the stream of, uh, of thought and truth takes you, just go with it, right? In fact, doing nothing is not even enough because you step into a river, right, and you don't fight the current to go upstream from it, it's going to take you away even if you don't want it to. So if you're thinking, I don't want to believe the wrong things, I don't want to believe the craziness that we keep hearing over and over and over again in the news, It's not enough to just say, I don't want to believe that. You have to fight that lie with the truth. You have to actively be engaging your mind with what is true. You hear a lie, you say, no, not acceptable. This is what is true. Remind yourself of it every single time. What does this mean then? Well, it means that we don't just let our kids watch anything that Disney spits out, right? Not that everything that Disney has ever produced is bad, I've heard some people argue, you better cancel that subscription and never watch Disney again. There's lots of great Disney stuff, but you have to be discerning about it. I, I listened to this podcast recently, and these guys were talking about and they're having this conversation, and this dad took his kids to go see the Lightyear movie, and they left 30 minutes later, right, because there's this marriage between two women in the first scene. And I thought, how did you not know that was in there? You, you have to try to not be, to pay attention, to not know that that was there. Right? It's everywhere. Everyone was talking about it for months and months and months. We can't just ignore the world and say, I'm gonna, that's how I'm going to protect my kids. We have to know what's going on to fight back against it. And it's not just kids. Parents, we can't just watch anything that the world says is entertaining. Let's be honest, Christians. Anyone who is truly serious about your sexual purity should have never, ever, ever watched Game of Thrones, right? And I know this because I made the stupid mistake of 10 years ago watching that show. We can't just, oh, well, everybody says it's good and the story is good and this and that. And I read the books and whatever excuse you want to come up with. And we watch this stuff that is filth to our eyes and we, we make a list of excuses. I can tell you this, I'm not going to make the same mistake again. I don't know if this new show that they're doing is as bad as the other one. I won't ever know because I'm not going to make the mistake. Right? I'm, just, I'm not going to do that to myself again. I'm not going to watch this thing. We have to be discerning. We can't just say, oh, it's a movie. It's no big deal. It doesn't matter. It doesn't affect me. It does affect us, whether we want it to or not. We have to fight back. We have to swim upstream against the current 
That's what Daniel and his friends are doing here. They're not just saying, well, it's not, it's not that big of a deal. Maybe I'll just take a little bit of what the king has given me, just a little bit of wine. I'm not going to get drunk, but I'm just a little bit here and a little bit there, and it's, you know, no big deal. Complacency breeds conformity. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to conform to what the world is throwing at us. Because it's pretty terrible, right? There's a lot of really terrible things going on. Let me just give you an example. So I, you know, I told you I'm a chaplain at the hospital. So what we do is we go out and we just visit patients as they come into the hospital. I try and have a conversation with them. We'll pray with them if they're willing. Tell them about Jesus if they're willing to listen. Like this, is, this is my whole job. I just go around. I help people. I, I try to bring spiritual comfort to people who are there. After that's over, I go back. I have to type up what I did, our conversation. We chart it in the computer. And when I first started there, I was resist. I, was, I, I felt this like... I won't use pronouns, he and she, because the hospital is like really like, oh, you know, we don't know this woman who is clearly a woman sitting in this hospital bed. I don't know that she identifies as a she. So I would, and when I realized what I was doing, like it just kind of made me feel sick to my stomach. Like, wait, what, what am I doing? It's a woman, right? She in the thing. I don't care if I get in trouble. I don't care if they fire me. It's a, it's a woman, right? We should, we should stand up for what is true no matter what. And I'm telling you, I, if you don't fight back, those things come into your brain and you don't even know it. And it took me a while to realize, like, this is what I'm doing, and I'm doing it almost subconsciously. We have to fight back. Something else that Nebuchadnezzar does is he isolates these boys from their community, right? He takes them from Jerusalem where their elders are who can help guide them, where their church is, where they are making their sacrifices, and he takes them into his country. It's no coincidence that he does this. Nebuchadnezzar is a smart guy. He knows what he's doing. Ladies and gentlemen, we, if we do that to ourselves, we, we are not an island. We are not meant to exist on our own. Satan would love to see you come to church once every three months, never fellowship with your fellow believers, and just do your own thing all the time. You know why? Because in that situation, you don't even know what you don't know, right? You, you will be sin. There will be sin in your life, and you don't even know that it's there. Because when we self-examine, a lot of the times, we're just like, oh yeah, I'm doing pretty good, right? Oh yeah, that sin that comes up, yeah, I know why it's happening, and I can just make excuse after excuse after excuse. And we've fallen into a, fit, a pit of despair, and we don't even see it. Most of the time, it takes the loving communication of another Christian to be like, dude, you've fallen way off here. Like, you've gone way off the rails with this. What's going on? Let's sit down and have a talk about this. Let me help you. Let me pull you up out of that pit. Let me, let me show you where the faults are happening. We become blinded to our own sin. Now, you might be thinking, I don't know anybody like that. I don't know anybody who would be bold enough to come to me and point out my sin to my face. You would if you spend time with the people of God, right? If you spend multiple hours every week in fellowship with one another in your small groups, <coughs> multiple hours coming here on Sunday morning and fellowshipping with people in Sunday school and in worship together, it's hard work. It takes, it takes hours to build that kind of trust, but that's where it comes from, right? Not, so God's not going to miracle somebody in your life who would just boldly say these things to you. It comes in a trusted friendship when we spend lots and lots of time together. This means that after work, if 
you're exhausted. The kids are screaming, covered in mud or whatever, and you're like, I, not this week. I can't do it. You do it anyway, right? You don't have the energy to go to small group? Do it anyway. Because it's, it's important. It's not just like, oh, well, that's what we do on Wednesday or Tuesday or whenever you guys do it. It's important. It's the lifeblood of the church. You can't walk your Christian faith on your own. It means that you, if you would rather spend the night at home with your spouse doing nothing, you invite over some friends from church and somehow use every pot and pan in your kitchen to cook a meal for people, right? And bring them into your house and bring them into your lives and share that with them. Be in communion with the people of God. Without it, we find ourselves in deep trouble. So this is what Nebuchadnezzar does, right? He isolates them to indoctrinate them, but teaches them the Chaldean language, gives them some new stuff to read, right? He doesn't say, hey, you can't read the law anymore. You can't read the Old Testament. We're not going to have an open debate of Babylonian gods versus the God of Israel. That's fine. You got the God of Israel, at least not yet. He hasn't said you can't worship your own God. He just, that's fine. You can read that, but read this, right? They're given new names. They're given a new diet, new set of literature, a new environment. This is exactly what our world is trying to do to our kids and to us, right? You don't have to just be a he or a she. You can be both or they or a cat or a toaster or whatever it is you want to be. You can just be anything, right? Be whatever you want to be. Still read your Bible if you want, but here, also read this book about how Timmy became Tina, right? Nobody's telling us we can't read our Bible. Nobody's telling us we can't come to church. They're just saying, along with that, let me also give you this nonsense, right? And we have to be willing to fight back. How does Daniel do this? 8 to 16. Let's read these verses together again. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward from the chief, uh, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us give, be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the uh, appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with, the, deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in, uh, in the matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance, fatter in flesh than all the ewes who ate the king's food. So the steward looked, uh, took away their food and wine um, that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Let me tell you, verse 8, I think, is the crux. This is, this is the foundation. If you don't hear anything else this morning, l- listen to this. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself. I don't care if there's some other good stuff, right? That's it. That's the foundation. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself. He made a choice before the opportunity was before him. I will not defile myself. Little guys, young kids, look up here. This week, when mom and dad ask you to do chores that you don't want to do, clean your room, Take out the garbage. Go feed the dog. Go wash the dog. 
resolve right now that you're going to be obedient to mom and dad, that you're going to say, yes, mom, yes, dad, or yes, ma'am, however, whatever you answer in your home, that you are not going to defile yourself, right? That you are going to be obedient to your parents. Teenagers, you guys just started a year of school, right? Have you done this yet? Have you resolved that this school year you will not defile yourself? That no matter what your friends are doing, that if they're going out on the weekends to drink, you're not going. Because that would defile you, right? Because that would be incongruent with following after God. You're not going to put anything in your body. That you're not going to use your body in any kind of sexual immorality to defile yourself, right? Have you made that resolve? Because here's the thing. If you wait until the temptation is in front of your eyes... The chances of you faltering are far greater than if right now, today, you say, I resolve, I promise, I am making a promise before the Lord that I am not going to defile myself. Adults, the same is for us. Have you made that resolution lately? Have you resolved that every time you interact with your spouse or with your kids that you are going to do so in a loving and kind and respectful manner? It's very difficult, right? The people whom we know the best, the people who we think we can get away with it, right? To be mean or to have a snappy word. Or... We have to resolve to not defile ourselves. We have to resolve that at work, every time the opportunity to share the gospel comes in front of our face, we're going to do it. We will not stand down. We will not back off of what is true and what is good. Daniel resolved in his heart not to defile himself. How does he go about this? Do the four of them gather their guns and go out into the woods and create a compound and say, nobody's allowed in. This is where we go. We're going to completely separate ourselves from the world, and that's how we're going to not defile ourselves. No, Daniel makes this resolution, and he stays engaged and involved with the, the Babylonian secular nation that is ruling over him. He doesn't withdraw So to start with, he simply asks, hey, can we have something else to eat? The thing you've put before us breaks the food laws of God. Now, does he jump up on the table in front of everybody and yell this and and condemn those around him? To me, it seems like he goes in private to this eunuch and say, hey, very, very respectfully, not with a rebellious heart. Just look, we can't eat this. Like, th- th- this would defile us in the, in the face of our God. Can we please do something else? Can we have something else to eat? The steward, the steward he, he sidesteps him here, right? No, I can't do that. I'm going to get in trouble if I do this. Is that when they gather their guns, go out into the woods? No, he continues to engage, right? Okay, I hear what you're saying. Let me, let me give you another proposition. He's using his brain, right? He, he's... he's having a conversation with this man and, and coming to an agreement, right? What about just 10 days then? What, what if we do it that way? Daniel is quiet and dignified. There's no grandstanding. There's no drawing attention to himself or his three companions. There's no rebellious spirit in his heart. You see, we can be obedient to God's commands and still be a jerk, right? It's, it's, that's a possibility, And that's not what we should be doing. We should be obedient to God's commands with a humble spirit. When I say we fight back against the government, I don't don't say rally up the boys in the truck with all the guns. I mean, like, fight back in a respectful and dignified way. Right? 
something as simple as going to the voting ballots. I mean, there are ways that we can fight back against the nonsense around us. There are ways that we can have conversations with people who would disagree with us without getting in their face or yelling or screaming. Being kind and being loving while also refuting what is untrue. second thing to notice is that Daniel does not care what anybody else thinks about what's going on. He's not the only one. Right? Daniel and his, and his buddies here, they're not the only four people who were brought back from Jerusalem. They seem to be the only four who are, who are bothered by the diet and by, by following the food law, but they're not the only ones who were brought back. And so I think it's safe to assume that some of his fellow Israelites, some of his fellow Jewish folks, were like, come on, man, let's lighten up a little bit. It's not that big of a deal. You know, don't drink too much. Don't eat too much. You'll be fine. It's no big deal. <coughs> this doesn't deter Daniel. He sticks to his convictions no matter what's going on. And we like to think like, oh, that's, that's what happens <coughs> in high school. Poor teenagers, they get, they, like, they get tempted by their, by their peers and all the time their friends are telling them, hey, just don't, don't worry about it. But adults, we know that this is true for us too, right? It's not like it magically goes away when you graduate high school. Our life is a life of if we stand on our convictions, there are going to be people who say, lighten up. What's, what's wrong with you? Why, are you? why do you care so much about this thing? Because God said it's important. That's why I care about it. That's why we care about these things. That's why we, we should never be willing to back down off of these So Daniel made his decision, and this is really important. He stuck with it, right? How many of you have done this, what we saw in verse 8? He resolved in his heart to do the right thing, right? To not defile himself. But then five days later, like, oh, gosh, this resolve is a lot harder than I thought it was, right? The temptations keep coming. I thought maybe if if I beat the first one, they'd go away. And a week later, we're like, oh, man. Dang it, like I I screwed up, I messed up, I made the resolve, but I didn't quite follow through with it. We're strong for a day or two, but we falter, we forget. We desire to stand strong, but we're weak. And this is the beauty of the gospel, is it not? That we make these resolutions and we want to honor God with everything that we do. And we try our best and even when we fail, God looks down upon us and says, I still love you. You are still forgiven. You see, every other major world religion teaches, here's the list of rules, do them, and if you do them well enough, you might get to go to heaven. Right? That's exactly what's being, I don't know where the building is, next to you, right? Wherever that Mormon church is, somewhere around. That's what they're teaching right now in their service. Be good, and maybe you'll get to go to heaven if you do enough good things. We're the only ones who are being honest. I can't do that. No matter how hard I try, I fail over and over and over again. And I owe God everything and I have nothing to pay him with. I owe him a debt far greater than anything that I have to offer. God says, I love you and I will make a way for you. And he sent Jesus and all of that sin and that guilt And all of the the horrible things that we have done are laid on his shoulders. And they die with him on the cross. 
Your sin and my sin and every bad thought and every bad thing we have ever done was executed and crucified with Jesus on the cross. And when he comes out of the grave in three days with new life, he gives that new life to us and says, all of that stuff you did is gone. It's dead and buried. You are forgiven and you are loved by God. That doesn't mean we don't try. It doesn't mean, well, okay, then I just... That negates Daniel 8. I'm not going to resolve to do anything good because why would I? God's going to forgive me all the time. No, we do it because we love God back. He has given us love and we, in our obedience, is not about trying to earn God's love or his salvation or the forgiveness that comes through Jesus. We got that already. It's about showing our obedience because that's how we show our love for God. So Daniel and his friends, they're faithful to God, and God is faithful to them. Is this shocking to anybody else that for 10 days they only ate vegetables and water and got fatter? You know how many people have written books or preached sermons about the Daniel diet? If you want to lose weight, here it is, right? Eat vegetables and water. I don't know if there's any vegans in the room. I'm sorry if there are. That's not a healthy lifestyle, right? Eating only vegetables and drinking only water. It's okay to have a little bit of extra reserves on, right? Fat is not a bad thing. We see it right here. They got fatter, and that's how the world understood them to be healthier. Now, with everything, you can have too much of something, right? But we, we can understand that this isn't, they, didn't, they didn't do this diet for health reasons. They did it so that God could do a miracle. If you and I eat vegetables and drink water only for 10 days, we will lose weight. That's what happens, right? They stand before Nebuchadnezzar in the king's court, and they're fatter, and they're healthier than the rest. Because God did a miracle in that situation. These last couple of verses, 17 to 21. And as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding and all visions and dreams. And at the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. The king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, or Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of him, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all the kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. The same with the diet, with this knowledge and wisdom, the ability to stand before King Nebuchadnezzar and answer these questions. This is a miracle of God. It's not that Daniel and and all these guys were smarter than everybody else. It's that God is working through them. They have faith in God, and God honors that faith by giving them intelligent things to say. How many of you are afraid to go out and evangelize to people because you say, I don't know what I would say. Uh, They're going to ask me this question, I don't know what to say. You don't, you don't have to know all the answers to all the stuff, right? Tell them the good news about who Jesus is. Answer what you can answer. If you can't answer something, hey, let me get your phone number. Let me go look it up. Let me, let me think about that for a couple of days, and let's talk about it later. There's a building a relationship right there, right? I mean, you don't have to have all of the answers. God will work through us, and that's exactly what God is doing with Daniel. They simply had to be faithful. Now, I would say, once again, we don't know the specifics. I think it's safe to assume that more than once when Daniel and his buddy stand before Nebuchadnezzar, he asks him a question, there was this temptation. Ooh, what is he? I know what he wants to hear, but what's true? 
He made me read all these Chaldean literature, right, and all this wisdom from their country, and I could regurgitate that back to him because I know that's what he wants to hear. But that contradicts the word of God. That contradicts what is true. You see, Daniel doesn't just go and stand before the lion on day one. I don't know how many times, a hundred times, he's tested just in these first couple of years, probably more. Are you going to do what is right in this very small situation? Are you going to answer what is true even though it might cost you something? Are you going to deny the food that everybody else is eating even though really it's not that big of a deal? Who's going to even know and why? See, Daniel is an old man when he stands in front of the lion because time after time after time he's tested and he is not found wanting by God. In all of those small things, he passes those tests. So I'm going to close with this. Do you desire to stand toe-to-toe with the lion? Do you desire to walk up to that furnace and say, I will hop in if that's what God wants from me? How do you handle the small stuff? How do you handle the day in and day out tests of your faith? You know the right thing to do. You know the right thing to say. You know the right attitude to have. In this situation, it's easier to lose your patience. It's easier to yell or to be mean. I struggle with that with my kids every single day. It's hard with three little kids, right, to be patient all the time. But that's what God commands of me. And those are the tests. Every day, God is testing me. Are you going to be patient? Are you going to be loving and kind? Are you going to lose your temper? Are you going to go into a fit of rage and yell at your kids when they don't deserve it? Are you faithful in the small stuff? My challenge to you is to gain victories every day in the little bitty things. Because there will come a time when you have the opportunity, and maybe it's not thousands of people, Maybe you're coaching a little league baseball team and, so, and all of a sudden you have this opportunity to share the gospel with all those little baseball players and their parents or whatever. Maybe it's at work, right? Maybe a meeting comes up in Bayfield and you have the floor and you have the opportunity to share the gospel with everybody who is at the town hall meeting, the four people who come, right? Like everybody who's there, right? You have, God will give you those opportunities, but he's not going to put you in that place until you have gone through the little day-by-day tests of faith. So I challenge you to do what is right, no matter how small it is. It doesn't matter. Constantly rely on God to give you that strength to persevere. And remember, when you fail, and you will fail, right, turn to Jesus. Ask for his forgiveness, and he is faithful. For anybody who repents of their sin and confesses him as Lord, he is faithful to forgive us. Yeah, that's already been decided, right? Once again, we don't We don't obey. We're not striving for holiness so that we can be saved. We're striving for holiness because Jesus tells us, if you love God, you will obey my commandments, right? It's as simple as that. Jesus said a lot of cryptic things, and we have a hard time understanding a lot of what he said sometimes. That one is as easy as it gets. You love God, obey his commandments, right? Do what God tells you. That's how we show our love. We are seeking holiness and righteousness because that is how we show love to God. So show your love for him. Strive for holiness, When the opportunity comes to stand in front of that lion, you'll be ready. Let's pray. Father God, we are so grateful for your word, and we are so grateful that it has a deep 
and lasting meaning for even us today. A book like Daniel that was written some 3,000 years ago (coughs) strikes at our heart right now in, in each of our situations. Lord, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the strength that we receive through your Holy Spirit that lives in each one of us pass these tests to strengthen our faith day faith day after day after day because god we we know and we should be praying for the opportunity to share the gospel to have an audience that will hear us that we can be faithful and true to your truth and to your word lord help us to be bold when that day comes it's in jesus name that we pray amen would you stand and sing with us